What's up, gifted family? Welcome to another episode of the show that is the GP YouTube. Just a reminder that if you support what we do here, make sure to go over to giftedperformance.com and sign up for our automated coaching service. For only a dollar a day, you'll get access to 15 highly customized training programs, a macronutrient calculator, our meal planning feature that lets you build and save meals based on your macros, as well as access to our private Facebook group. All subscriptions help us in continuing to put out great content to get you to your fitness goals. Thanks for stopping by, and without any further delay, let's get into today's video. Enjoy. Welcome back, guys. Another Q&A episode of the GPP, the Gifted Performance Podcast, where we give you the information and practical takeaways to improve your own general physical preparedness. I am joined by three of my closest friends, Dom. We are showing that we are toddlers. Dom's got the Zelda shirt on. What was the best Zelda? The Ocarina of Time. I was going to say, I couldn't even of course, see the bottom dude. of your shirt. I couldn't even see the bottom of your shirt, and I knew. I'm repping a little bit of my dog, a little bit of my childhood favorite show. And then we've got Paul, who's got the, I don't even know what that is, like a bumblebee tank top. I like it. It looks comfy. It is comfy. And Jay, just looking classy as ever, but the Batman in the background. There it is. All right, folks. So we are going to start this thing off today with something that has been been weighing heavy on me. And it's something that I don't often do. So get your cameras out, record this, because I'm going to say something that I haven't said since Vietnam. Guys, I was wrong. And I've been wrong for years now. The last night I was scrolling through the body recomposition group, Lyle McDonald's group, friend of the channel, Lyle. Thanks for having the quality group, quality folks in there. Um, and they posted, uh, someone in there, I forget who exactly it was, posted it. They posted a research article titled, oh man, I got to pull up the title here. The title of the article was The Effect of Shell Egg pasteurization on the protein quality of albumin. And it was a, a 2001 study that looked at the bioavailability of liquid egg whites. So like your carton of egg whites that you get this pasteurized. So I always assumed the pasteurization process, raising the temperature up to 160 degrees was enough to increase the bioavailability of the eggs found inside. But guys, boy, oh boy, was I wrong. Raise your hand if you've ever drank liquid egg whites before. Many, many times. Um, but never it was, really? I'm not I've a never drink liquid egg whites. Oh, man. During some of my most successful preps, I would work security at the bar. I'd come home, take about a half a carton, dump it in a glass, mix in some sugar-free chocolate syrup, and I would have chocolate egg whites. So that just sounds fucking disgusting to me. <laughs> it, so many activities that bodybuilders do are disgusting, and that's the one where you're like, no, I draw the line. L drinking liquid egg whites, that's where I draw the line. I had a buddy who uh, like thought that uh, milk was evil and just awful for you, and so when he had Oreos, 
he would <laughs> drink fucking liquid egg whites, or when he ate cereal, he would use liquid egg whites for it. Man, I'm gonna and get. I think, I think maybe a little bit of creamer, a little bit of flavored creamer. Ooh, I'm gonna get blasted. On this podcast, that's okay. You can tell me how much of a piece of shit I am in the comments below. When I was a kid, I hated milk, like genuinely hated milk. So I would dip my Oreos in. Are you ready? It's water. Water. (laughs) What? What? I'm sorry, guys. Please, please. Uh, Of all the things. I wouldn't drink the water afterward. It wasn't, uh, I wouldn't drink the I feel like I get it. When people are like, I don't like milk, I'm like, that's cool, man. Fuck you, but that's cool. (laughs) But, like, milk and and Oreos, that's, like, different. You know, that's just a different thing. That's not. But if you like, like the taste of Oreos and you don't like the taste of milk, you wouldn't want the milk ruining the Oreo for you. But so it what made you, you don't take all. All it does is make it softer. Listen, I wanted the sensation of the softness, but I wasn't ready to commit to the milk. And um, also, I was, a, I was very early on. I was a vegan. Like slamming like, a cold glass of milk yeah. when like you just have like Oreo paste, like so much Oreo <laughs> paste, like half swallowed Oreo paste stuck in your mouth that you're like, I need something refreshing and cold. It's just different, man. It hits it hits you different. Ice water. All you need is a nice glass of ice you're water. Shit, <laughs> I don't know. We got to talk about this. Yeah. Before we move on, let's let's remember. Do you guys remember when everyone was super mad at? Fairlife because those videos came out of them like beating cows and stuff like that was so fucked up but what's even more fucked up is that people were upset for like literally 72 hours and then they were like yo Fairlife high protein milk let's get it see yeah that's the thing that's why I never really drink egg whites because I would just slam two glasses of Fairlife milk with two scoops of protein and be like I got 75 grams of protein I honestly think Fairlife tastes different Tastes better. It tastes cleaner. Milk. Cleaner. It tastes wow. like it <laughs> tastes like the the fear and adrenaline of of those cows. You can taste <laughs> it in your milk. The four vegans that watch this, sorry Miranda, I've just left the chat. <laughs> it tastes cleaner because it tastes like oppression. Maybe that's why I'm always like, ooh, yeah, it tastes yeah, delicious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So aside from liquid egg whites and milk, we also wanted to start off. I threw it on my story, and maybe you guys did the same and you got some other um, responses that we can add there. And it was all of the ways that waist trainers so for those who aren't familiar, a waist trainer is something very tight, similar to a corset that you strap around your waist under the illusion that it's going to make your waist smaller over time if you wear it. I honestly don't even know the protocols. All day, most of the day, hours out of the day, depends who you talk to. So all the way waist trainers work, debunked. So the one that I got that was the most popular... I think I had six people submit this as their answer. They said that waist trainers work because fit pros with small waists wear them. So because these people that have small waists wear them, they must give you a small waist. Does anyone want to dive in and debunk that one before I take my shot at it? Did anybody ever think that maybe those fit pros already had small waists. Chicken in the egg. That never occurred to anyone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was going to be my argument. 
It's like maybe these waist trainer companies were like, our shit doesn't work. So you know who we need to find as an ambassador? Someone who already has a small waist. Strap that bitch on. Look at it work. It's magic. Um, yeah, so... Oh, man. I think corsets, you know, it, it comes from that whole thing, and corsets might have an effect, but I think there's, like, a, a wrong assumption that even corsets are just, like, a permanent thing. And I'm pretty sure, like... Because we've seen we've seen the example of corsets and that where they even do like x-rays and shit and like things move and, you know, potentially like your core shape changes. But if you were to stop wearing that corset for a while, I'm pretty sure everything just falls back to to where, where it should. Um, and but waist trainers are just completely fucking different. And, and the difference with the corset, too, like for people that, you know, wear them. Like you, I guess, like back in the day, wore them. Like they wore them for, like if you're really trying to shrink your waist, like it, it's something that has to be worn all the fucking time. Versus a uh, like you, you got to sleep in it. You got to wear it when you're in, during your waking hours. And the waist trainers, one, they are not as uh, like extreme. Like like corsets have have wire in them, and yeah. you, you can get them extremely tight. Whereas a waist trainer, it's like a floppy piece of material that that compresses somewhat i guess almost like a maybe like a i mean they're a little more sturdy but i guess in the way that you like an elbow sleeve or something like that you know um and people are mostly wearing them during their training sessions only you know or parts of the day so so you're not really going to get a a a long-lasting or probably even much of an effect from that yeah I know a lot of people that wear like corset type waist trainers too, where they have like hooks and they hook on and, and then they wear them like, I mean, I know a girl actually, um, she wore one for so long and constantly had, um, vaso burn on her midsection and then wore the corset all day for like six or seven months it caused permanent nerve damage in her midsection. She can't even feel it. And her skin elasticity is like, you know, when you like stretch out a rubber band for so long and then it just like stays like that. That's kind of where she's at now. It's been like years like that. And it's like slowly getting better. But I don't know if that was a combination of the two, but I'm sure that had something to do with it. Just rubbing a, a non-FDA-approved cream that burns the fuck out of you every day for months on end probably probably did do something. <laughs> well, that's but, weird because isn't it like when you test your – because, I mean, <clears throat> when I was in the fire academy in a past life, that's how you would test if somebody was dehydrated. You call it, call it turgor where you, like, pull the yeah, skin on their pull, finger like, to the skin up. goes back. So is that affecting hydration in that specific area? That's weird. I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. I wonder if they've ever looked. So the next one that I got was, and I think that this one was someone being facetious, but they said they squeeze my organs into a compact area. And that, that is, that's true. That That is the truth of how, what thing is, things are happening here. I guess my counterpoint is to what happens to your organs when you take it off. They return to their normal location. That's number one. Number two, 
why are you trying to do that to your organs? Um, I wonder if there's been any research on corsets that's looked at potential like organ damage. I don't think there is, but I know that's been the common like theoretical rationale against them. Because I mean, a lot of your organs too, like you know, they secrete different things like proteins, hormones, and shit like that. And like they, you know, theoretically they may not function properly if they're shifted or tightly compressed. So. So hear me out on this one. But but like I said, a waist trainer, like that's like putting a tight sock around your waist. Like that's not the same as a corset. Like the, yeah, the commercial <laughs> ones now are like essentially like neoprene. It's like wearing a very tight wetsuit around your waist pretty much at all times. Yeah. Like I would it's like a slap I think it's it's a little more sturdy yeah. than neoprene, but basically the same thing, yeah. Oh, so Jimmy just threw another one. She said, uh, the point is to increase sweating in your core area. So to de locally dehydrate your core area. That's one that I hadn't heard. But like you look at those companies like Sweet Sweat. Is that what it's called? Sweet yeah. Sweat? <clears throat> yes. Gross. Hey, sweet. You're like, oh, <laughs> that's disgusting. Um, you might want to get checked for diabetes. Um or the, the vaso burn is that you get localized sweating. And I think that comes from like people thinking that burning fat is like a literal thing. Like <laughs> hot equals burning fat. More hot equals more burning fat. So I, I think the argument is if you can increase the temperature of the area, you can promote more blood flow. That's and if true. you have like fat oxidation going on in that area, you can use it a bit more. I don't know how much that translates to actually burning fat, but that's like the whole idea is increase temperature here so we can put blood here so we can take fat away from here. Ah, it sounds really good. That's, sounds why, like, that's why like basal burn has capsaicin in it to give it that burning sensation. So it heats up the whole area and promotes more blood flow to the area. But That's the blood flow that it's promoting there. is superficial. It's not going to reach those deep areas. That red that red skin, when you take it off, means that all the blood flow has gone to the skin, not to the adipose well, in the area. That's why they target subcutaneous fat. I know the, uh, the thing, uh, marketing, bro. <laughs> that's, that's brilliant. I know the thing with vasoburn that I, I'd like more, you know, one day to talk to somebody that could maybe help me out with this one. But um, they contains yohimbine. And like the, the concept behind that is to, you have this transdermal, but the problem with that people don't realize is, yeah, you put something on transdermally, but it goes systemic once it's in your body, you know? Also, what's yeah. the absorption rate of a transdermal Yohimbine versus just ingesting Yohimbine orally? I think it matters on the carrier system that is actually carrying yohimbine transdermally. Because, like, I worked with Kalo's body for a while, and they make creams too and lotions. And his carrier system he used, uh, they, they did a clinical trial on it, and it was a lot more effective than, like, the leading brand. So I think it depends on how 
good that carrier system is to get it across the skin barrier and deep enough so where it could get absorbed. Also, I could be mistaken, but um, I want to say a long time ago, a while back, I looked into the bio uh, or the oral bioavailability of Yohimbine, and it's I think it's extremely variable between people, and it could be something really low for some people, like 30%, and then like for other people, I think all the way up to 80%. So uh, for Yohimbine, I, d I don't think oral for some people is the best route of administration. I think I need to email. I need to email Kamal Patel, MrExamine.com, so we can ask him some some deep questions here. But hear me out on this one: Chinese foot binding. How does that work? They just what is that? They just tie up feet when they're little kids and don't let them grow. And they see that's the important part. So I've had someone say, waist training is the same as Chinese foot binding. But again, like Paul said, one, you have to start when you're very young, and two, it's affecting the bones of the feet, right? Like it's preventing the bones from growing, it's correct? The same idea as a bonsai kitten. <laughs> Paul, you're Korean. You should know about Chinese foot binding. So that's oh, racist. Jesus. He's Korean, that's... not Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking. Uh... <laughs> That that would just be weird too. Like if you like tied up a, a kid's waist, they they probably wake like grow up looking really fucking weird. Like perfect cylinder like waist, and then just like I've got a kid. Look like a body. I mean, we can try this out. <laughs> Clinical trial. Clinical trial. We get to try one thing though, dude. Do you want to use it on this? I found a clinical experience of corsets and organ damage. Ah. It's just one person, though. No underlying liver pathology or the constricting garment and then had subcapsulary hematomas and other internal organ pathologies that happened from compression, bruising, and ischemia of the newly found popularity of corsets. Huh. Well, you'll, we'll have to link my, that in the description, in the show notes, telling you something. My girlfriend tried it during her prep, and, you know, finally, after, like, years, I was like, you know what? Fuck it, man. I've been wrong before. Give it a shot. Um, and uh, But what she did was she wore a corset at night while she was sleeping, and then all day long through the day wore a waist trainer. Um, and after – I can't remember the duration of time, but after a little bit of time, visually – I thought I, it seemed like her waist got smaller, but she was also dieting at the time. Like, I could have just been seeing her progression dieting and thinking it was the corset. But also, after, I can't remember, a uh, handful of weeks or maybe a month or two, she was just kind of like, fuck this. I'm not doing this anymore. And she just stopped. And from that point on, you know, the rest of her diet, I was like, your waist looks just like it did last diet. Like, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the most frequent time that we, people wear waist trainers, right, is when they're dieting and they're like, hey, look, my waist is getting smaller. It's like, But they're losing weight. <laughs> you're dieting. <laughs> your waist is getting smaller already. You asshole. <laughs> Um, all right, what are some of the other ones here? Uh, I've heard that one a bunch. They reduce hypertrophy, one? of 
core muscle. Yeah, so that's an argument there is that by wearing these very constrictive garments, especially while you're training, it reduces the demand of your core musculature either throughout the day or while you're training to the point where you can either get atrophy or a reduction in hypertrophy of your core musculature. And I would say that that's probably probably true. But to that what extent? I have to I have what extent? What's the absolute like change in like hypertrophy there? Like, I mean, what is it? An eighth of an inch? Is it a quarter of an inch? How are we going to measure this? I bet it has to do with like some like uh, bracing issues. Like if it's super tight, like a belt, like like if you could brace against it, maybe I could see it. Like, but you don't have to use your abs as much, where it's helping you. In a, in a lot of divisions, like even in like something like bikini, where like you probably they probably wear waist trainers the most. That's the division where they probably wear waist trainers the most. Would be something like bikini. Like you still want defined and decently developed ab and core oblique musculature. So would atrophy of the muscles in those areas actually benefit you just to get you know an extra quarter inch off your waist? I mean, usually when we see somebody with poor, like, abs, ab structure and weak cores, like, on stage, like, it's not a good look. To just have a – be really lean and have a smooth stomach, it's, yeah. it's not a good look. And that was always my issues in my front poses. I could get really lean. I could get, like, striated glutes from top to bottom lean, and I would hit my front poses, and you couldn't see a single ab just because I had such small ab muscle bellies, I guess you could say. They weren't because of all my goddamn waist trainer wearing. No, it's that damn Inzer belt, like four inch thick piece of plywood I wore around my waist while I did my twelve sets of ten on squat. Or, <laughs> or the lack of weighted ab work, maybe. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but I have to say, anecdotally, since switching over to CrossFit, doing a lot of GHD setups, a lot of toe-to-bar, a lot of direct ab work, I feel as if, even at a higher body fat, I'm probably like 12% body fat right now, I can still see my abs protruding quite a bit through. So maybe I'm getting ab jacked. Yeah, man. Time to throw the waist trainer back on. Yeah, um, I right. know about the hypertrophy thing. Like, because they're, they're not so, I don't even know what words to use, like abrasive or I don't know. Uh, it's, it's it, you're still using your core. Like I can see it be a problem if like yeah. you just, you're like, oh, I'm wearing this waist trainer. That's so supportive that I'm not going to use my core at all to keep myself up. And I wear it all day long. Um, but even in training, like you're bending over to pick up dumbbells and like, you're, you know, laying up and getting down. <laughs> You know what I imagine? Have you guys seen the episode of Family Guy where Stewie wears the back brace because it gets him a lot of attention? And then he finally takes it off and all the muscles in his back are so weak that he, like, can't even stand up or walk. Like, that's what I imagine people think that happens when you, like, take the waist trainer off. Like, I imagine you're still bracing. You're still using your core underneath it quite a bit. Because you're even bracing against it. Out into it. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe. it doesn't... I don't know. I, I, cause I remember back in the day, remember like everybody wore, and people still do it, where they wear a belt because they don't want their waist to get wide. And I don't think that's ever really uh, materialized any of that waist. Dude, how about saran wrap? People wear oh. saran wrap. Oh, damn. I completely forgot about that. 
They like they like lather up like Vaseline and put saran wrap on them. Pull the water out. Pull it out. Let's pull water out eight weeks out. <laughs> Let's do it. Start pulling water. It's never too early. My my favorite last final words of a bodybuilder during peak week. Just wait till I pull water. Like, oh, you're right. I can't wait. I'm so. And you're just excited. like, you've been fucking up, man. I've been pulling water since 11 weeks out, dude. <laughs> um. All right. What are some of the other ones here? Oh, uh, dude, you at- brought up something cool uh, or notable the other week off air when we, you were talking about like how much can ab work even thicken your waist? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, like, go ahead. Look at, you know, the muscle bellies, like the size. If we look at like, like the diameter of these muscles of your abs, I mean, they're what an eighth of an inch, a quarter of an inch, maybe. Rectus abdominis is like probably, or obliques are probably the thickest of the muscles there, and they're what half an inch, quarter of an inch, maybe thick. So if you Let's just say that the waist trainer works so well that your obliques go down like half in size. It's like, okay, you've just taken, what, a quarter inch off your waist for what could be a noticeable difference in terms of losing that definition in that area. It's just a, I don't know. It's a, it's a it doesn't very make sense. Like, it doesn't. Like, at a, which ratio-wise is actually a lot more, but take Imagine adding a quarter inch to your arms, or at times where times where you did add a quarter inch to your arms. And you look at your arms; do they look any bigger? No, no, no different. <laughs> no different. There's two years of work, two years of direct arm work for that quarter inch, and they look no different. Not the only ones that notice are your homies. So always kiss your homies for noticing. Uh, what are some other ones that they had on here? Uh, prevent bloating. Like, because bloating has nothing to do with your digestive system. <laughs> like, hey, man, just just eat that food that doesn't agree with you. You're lactose intolerant. That's fine. Slam some ice cream, throw on the waist trainer, and just speed the expulsion process along. You'll just be blowing it out before you have any discomfort. Hey, you won't be bloated. You won't be bloated. You here, man. It's true. Just force it to go into other places in your body. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the like you see the people post like after a big cheat meal like praying that all this pizza goes to my delts like I imagine them doing that Paul like strapping on the waist trainer so that like they literally can't poop oh, out the pizza so that it just stays up and goes into their delts they just have one of those things that you spackle walls with and you're like, <laughs> rolling it into their delt <laughs> um, oh here we go the last one that I got so remember guys the question was how do or explain to me the ways that waist trainers work the final submission that I got was good friend Omar Rivera submitted another one and he submitted why would you use tempo work if the goal is hypertrophy <laughs> what does that have to do with waist trainers that's that's a great question that's that's what I thought so can we turn this into a question? Oh, he gave me that question, too, and I put it at the bottom. I didn't know he gave it to you and included it under waist trainers. Omar, 
What the fuck, man? We were talking about waist trainers. We'll get to your tempo question on the next one. This is your punishment for asking a question where it didn't belong. We're not going to answer it until the next episode. So come back and we'll see you on the next one. All right. That's 27 minutes about waist trainers and egg whites. Guys, I'm really proud of us. We we really know how to. That was good. That was good. Say a lot, accomplish nothing. We're never getting that time back. It's gone. No, no, that's committed. That's sweat equity right there, guys. Sweet sweat equity, you could say. All right. So the first question of the day, user submitted, it comes from at dad underscore lifts underscore. Dom, I think this is a a friend of yours. A client now. Client of yours now. Is he a dad? Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And he lifts? Yep. Perfect. I like the name then. It fits. Um, so Mr. Dad Lifts says, any specific benefits to carving up before your workout for more instant energy, instant energy, as opposed to just balancing them throughout the day and not doing more before your workout and less after? All right. So the question here being, are there any specific benefits to having a large bolus of carbohydrates directly before your training? What do you, what do you think? Like, what do you think Mr. Dadlifts definition of like right before your training is? Are we talking 30 minutes before 60 minutes before somewhere in that window? Maybe right before sounds like within an hour, I would say. Yeah, I'd say okay. within an hour. All right, cool. Then we'll answer this question with that being our premise. Carbohydrates within an hour of the workout, what would be some of the benefits? Or are you better off spreading throughout the day or maybe even having those carbohydrates after your training session? Take it away, gentlemen. I think we should should define what the workout is first. All right, so what's the? how does this individual train? It's chest day. normal waist training. Normal, normal resistance training. 60 to 90 minutes, you know, somewhere between 12 to 20 sets per workout, a couple body parts per workout. Yeah? There you go. Now Paul can take it away. Paul, hit it. Um, I mean, I don't have to start. I don't mind starting, but fuck it. All right. So uh, <laughs> I think uh, it, it, it really depends, you know. Um, well, I think the first thing we need to consider is that it takes time for shit you eat to be digested and then to be uh, like turned into other things like muscle glycogen, you know, for that to be incorporated in a muscle is muscle glycogen. That, that can take like some time. So it, it would make sense that you would want to have it probably doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things for like somebody who sits on their ass all day and like literally probably like 20 hours a day. Um, and they train and move for a total of like two hours of their whole fucking day. Um, probably matters. (laughs) But like, it would make sense that you would want to have, you know, some carbohydrates throughout your day to make sure that that process has been happening and that you, uh, you're fully like, you know, replenishing your glycogen and not just trying to like just shove it all in immediately pre-workout. But I do think there, it makes sense that you would also want to have some carb pre-workout and even a small amount of carb intra workout isn't necessarily a bad thing, you know, just to keep your blood sugar from dropping and stuff. And from that aspect, um, 
But yeah, I, I don't think I, I would just say unless somebody is in is calorie restricted and they really need to pick and choose where their food goes and be a little more specific about having more food around their most active periods of the day, that probably just split it all up fairly equally throughout your day. Yeah, I think pre-work, if you're a, like a pre-contest bodybuilder that's pretty deep in prep, it, it may make a difference, you know, to give you enough energy. Because at that point, you're just trying, you're literally like holding on for dear life. So it, it, may, it may help you perform better in your session. Maybe some people don't really have that issue where they're like, I don't need that food beforehand. Um, I always think of a lot of these questions from sort of a, the evolutionary biologist standpoint, sort of like how poor of a species would we be if we had to eat right before we did something all the time for a species that's really pretty bad at running fast and hunting things. We don't have claws. We don't have any of those things. So that'd be a pretty bad sort of uh, adaptation if we needed to like eat and then immediately do something. So I think if you kind of look at it from that standpoint, it just doesn't seem to really not necessary in most aspects unless you're literally starving yourself for a competition. Yeah, I I could see that. I think, though, too, that, like, from the perspective of, like, optimization, you know, that word that we all, like, is trendy to hate now. Well, um, I'm going to kick the shit out of you. <laughs> but, How like, dare you? You know. How dare you? Um, like, there, there are certain things, like, and part of it's just, like, comfort. Like, I myself... <laughs> Do not train well just from just being hungry, like knowing I'm hungry in the gym and feeling that hunger. Like I, I'm not going to train as well. And, it's, you know, similar to like I hate hot environments. Let me we know physiologically there's a reason why hot environments are bad for training. But also, like, if I'm just hot in the gym, I'm going to be like, dude, fuck this. Like, I can't train in this. It sucks. So. Paul, you'd make a great crossfitter. <laughs> I know. I'll show up day one. No AC? All right, guys. I'm fucking done with this stupid sport. <laughs> Crossfit's stupid. You guys don't have ACs? <laughs> I know. I'm going to go do it in an hour, and I agree with you. Um, <laughs> no, I think that Paul makes a good point of, like, you really have to consider a lot of factors. And you also have to consider, like, what's the composition of the meal that you're eating? Because if you're eating a meal that's, like, hot, like a typical kind of, like, bodybuilder meal, a mixed meal, is going to have some sort of protein, some sort of fat in it as well. And the content of, you know, amount of fiber, amount of fat, the nutrients that slow down digestion could mean that that meal that you had one hour pre-workout is still digesting. The majority of it is still digesting by the time you get to the gym. You start working out. Blood flow is shunted away from the digestive system to the skeletal muscle, whatever muscle you're working that day. And basically none of that meal is now getting digested. It's basically just sitting in your stomach waiting for blood flow to move back to the digestive system to kind of start that digestive process again. So you may have to wait, you know, two, three, four, up to six hours before that car, those like wheat thins that you had with lunch have been turned into and, and stored as muscle glycogen. Now, Actually, what I was Jay says about um, having some carbohydrates when you're very lean and I think this this comes from the Rapid Fat Loss Handbook as well. Um, there's talk in there about having some carbohydrate, like five to ten grams of simple carbohydrate, directly before you train or like right when you start training, 
just as a way of stabilizing blood glucose, having some sort of way of stabilizing blood glucose. So the first set of bench press or the first set of deadlift doesn't just completely sap you of all your blood glucose and you go hypo and you just feel like you're going to die. Yeah. I I think like my smallest meals a day, I think is my pre-workout meal. I don't really eat much before I go train. I have like, maybe 30 grams of carbs and like a little bit of fat. And I go, I go hard. I go hard. I dude, I eat my meal and I'm like, all right, change, like make my, uh, beverage. And I go fucking train. I, I do not like being, uh, like hungry at the gym. No, I do. I do that. Like, I think like in prep, psychologically it might help somebody to to get through their workout like oh i just ate some carbs before my workout they might like mentally feel like they have like more energy that day um just because they had those carbs before but like i i used to do a lot of like meal timing like pre-workout post-workout meals for people and then i kind of just shied away from it because like the more and more i learned i just learned like nutrient timing is like the tip of the pyramid like of importance. So if I can let somebody like have their food gradually through the day, I, like just spread out evenly, I'd rather just do that. And I kind of tell people too, like, don't be overly consumed with what you're eating before. Like, I, obviously you don't want to have like a bunch of fiber before you go train or like a bunch of like protein before you go train, just because it's going to be harder to digest while you're training. And so you might feel like shit. Bro, I'm like three or four hundred grams of rice, eight ounces of chicken, some coconut oil, like 30 minutes before I step into the gym. But no, uh, Ryan reminded me a while back, I looked at like some, I, I was just curious on, on how long blood sugar stayed elevated post meal, since that could be sort of an indicator, you know, if something's still in the blood, that means it's not like being used actually for something yet, or has been used and absorbed into like a cell or something. Um, and I want to say from memory, I know it was the participants were just fed like cream of rice. And so it was almost exclusively carb, just like a couple grams of protein, like trace fats. And uh, I want to say blood sugar stayed elevated. And granted, they didn't train during this period, but uh, I think it took like three, four, maybe even five hours to cut for blood sugar to completely come back down to baseline. From like 50, 60 grams of cream of carb from cream of rice. That would make sense. Yeah. Am I getting any feedback right now? My headphones just decided to take it down. No? No. Sweet. Um, All right. Expansion upon this question here. Another user submitted question. Friend of the channel, Corn Cob Jimmy is what they call her on the streets. Never heard of her. Jimmy asks, because it's similar to this question. At what point in training is it imperative that one include intra-workout carbohydrates? So at what volume of training would it be necessary where someone is going to see a clear and evident benefit from supplementing with some form of intra-workout carbohydrates? I know the answer. If you're doing the Tour de France. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, it's, I mean, it's exercise durations 
or it's exercise types that are rhythmic and continuous in nature. So think long distance running, long distance rowing, long distance cycling. Maybe it's, you know, someone who is doing some aerobic work and they are a speed skater, like our, our good friend, uh, Mr. Holt here, doing some long distance speed skating, more skating than speed. Um, of like 90 plus minutes, maybe upwards of like two hours where you can get, especially if you've had like a really big carbohydrate meal before you go. So when you had like four bagels for breakfast and now you're going, now you're going to put in your, I don't know, you're an insane endurance athlete and you're doing like eight to 10 miles of running that day. Like maybe, you know, after around the three mile mark, the four mile mark, it's, you reach for some of those weird, like goo, jelly, gummy, weird things that, that runners and whatnot eat for, a hypertrophy athlete or for someone who is in the pursuit of strength and or hypertrophy, the need for intra workout nutrition is essentially zero. It is, it is about as close to zero as you can get. Well, I remember, uh, I, oh, go ahead. I remember, uh, I think somewhere in the master's program, um, <laughs> I'm sure Ryan can attest. It's like we got into that para workout lecture, um, yep. with Hoffman, and some bro in that class asked about how it applied to bodybuilders, and he just looked over at him like, like he had just insulted his mother or something like that. And he was just like, it doesn't, it doesn't at all. And I thought like his face got red. I thought he was going to snap the kid's neck. But I mean, it just goes to that idea. Like, how much glycogen are we actually depleting when you're doing curls? Like, probably not very much. And then you have to right back to that evolutionary biologist hat again. How absurd would that be if we needed to make sure that we had enough glycogen or carbohydrate to do those curls? And once we use it, it was gone, and we can't move our arms anymore. Like, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. I actually think there's some research showing that, like, uh, with, you know, something typical of a workout, like between four to six sets for a muscle, you deplete a good bit, but it's not like a hundred percent, you know, like it's probably a good bit, 40, 60, 70 or something. But like, that's not like you said, um, evolutionarily, it's not like you just fucking, you're not able to use your arm anymore. But what I was going to say is, uh, like, it's not that they're not helpful at all, but probably not to the magnitude that people think they are. And they probably don't need the like amount of shit in their drink as well. Like I, I can think of circumstances where like a, uh, an intra workout drink might be beneficial. Cause like, you know, ga- think about like Gatorade formulation and stuff. Like the carbs are in there, like one for energy substrate for certain athletes, but also it improves like hydration as well. And, uh, you know, there's along with that, the, the electrolytes and that as well. So like, you know, you training in a CrossFit, your, most of your workouts are pretty short, but like, let's just say you did an hour and a half, you know, um, bodybuilding style workout in an environment like that. Um, like it might be beneficial to have an intra workout drink. It just probably doesn't need to be 50, 50 grams of carbs, and like you know have a bunch of other random supplements in it 
So for context, I have yet to use any intra-workout carbohydrates since switching over. Um, and I'll have workouts that are, you know, similar to bodybuilding workouts. Like I can think of one that I'm going to have, um, I think it's tomorrow, where it's a workout. It's like eight sets of eight on bench press, eight sets of 10 on pull-ups, and then it's 50 dips, 100 curls, 100 lateral raises. And then it's a short conditioning piece that probably has somewhere between 200 to 300 repetitions in it um, of mostly like muscular endurance work. And then we've got... You know, four close to maximal 2000 meter um, intervals on the rower. And like after that, I'll be drained, like I'll be dead, but I won't have any of those like hypoglycemia symptoms during my training session. And that's with, you know, a moderate carbohydrate intake. Like I'm not slamming 600, 700 grams of carbs a day. I average, you know, somewhere between like 300 and 350 grams of carbs a day to fuel workouts like that. And it's interesting too that you say that because like a healthy person really shouldn't like that's kind of the job of your liver and like why you release like glucagon and less insulin like while you're training is so that it, it can make some blood glucose for you from other substrate that you're breaking down in your training. <laughs> yeah. All right. We got to get on to the next question because it's going to take us a little while to really to just let Dom go on this one. Dom's going to preface us with a chapter called ask me a good question, please. Um, all right. So the next question comes from at tungsten.fitness. What is tungsten? That's like a, that's like a metal on the periodic table, uh, isn't it? It's metal. It is. They make wedding rings in it. You should get one. Wow. I got one. Guys, <clears throat> tungsten. Look at that. Tungsten. I think it's because if you, if like my finger gets broken, they can cut this off. I think is what it looks. Damn, I might have just made that up. That's yeah. dark. Yeah, because if you're wearing like a like, I forgot what it is. It's like if you're wearing maybe silver or something like that, and it gets swollen, they might have to cut your finger off. But with tungsten, they can just cut through it. I think I don't know. I may have just completely made that up. That's Somebody what they will. want you to think. Exactly. <laughs> so tungsten fitness asks, RIR or failure. End of the question, right there. Dom, take Paul's a the training guy. <laughs> Dom's the <Okay>. frustrated guy. <laughs> Dom, for this guy, for this guy, failure because this is an absolute failure of a question, Oof. and this guy is a failure. Oof, got I, it. I don't know you. You can go ahead, Dom. Uh, well, he's pro- so. I'm gonna assume he's asking. Should I train to failure every session, or should I implement some kind of RIR? I think right? that's what he means. Yes, I let's think give him the most generous interpretation of his question. He probably means across all sessions, should I use an RIR approach, or should I just blast myself to failure every single day? Yeah, um, I would. I would say you're not like Dorian Yates, so you should probably do some kind of RIR. Um, I had this conversation with somebody the other day about. Because he was like, why don't you train a failure every session? And I said, because you can't. Like, I, I, I can't do that. And he said, well, guys like Dorian did, guys like Branch Warren do. I said, but you're forgetting that Dorian did legs on Monday. He didn't do legs again until, like, Tuesday the next week. He didn't train that body part for, like, eight days. Like, if he did one set to absolute failure and then did it again eight days later, yeah, maybe he actually was trained to failure every time. 
But guys want to like train like that. And I think the issue with like the failure training every time is there's no, it makes it hard to track like progression. And I think with constantly going to failure, you have like guys where they're like 135 bench press, they do to failure. Then like the next time they train, they do it again. But they might have like so much fatigue accumulated that like their range of motion is different between both. So maybe they, they're affecting like the technique of training just because their accumulation of fatigue throughout the week is getting so high. Um, I, you know, I, I, I trained, I probably trained most of the time, like a two RIR before working with Paul. Um, I never trained like pure, pure failure, like to where I fell on things and stuff. I always kept a little bit in the tank. Um, it was just how I found myself growing the most. But then now, like, working with Paul, and then Paul's, like, giving me all this information to read and things, like, it just makes so much more sense why training, you know, you don't have to call it RIR, but, like, training to some, like, cap each time and then slowly getting closer to that max, just, it just makes a lot more sense from so many different aspects. Because I didn't realize, like, at first, like, how many different aspects went into muscle building, like, mind to muscle, metabolite accumulation, like all these different things that if you're going to failure, if you're going to failure each time, quote, unquote, because it just, it's not, it's not something you could do every session because like we know some muscle groups don't repair as fast than others. So you could, you know, do failure, like a push day all to failure, come in the next day and do a back day, all to failure. When you go to do legs, your back might be the limiting factor because you trained it so hard that your leg workout suffered from it all. And I think that's where like RIR comes really in handy that you can train these body parts one after another and not be completely gassed session after session after session. Something I want to add before Paul, I'm going to let you go here, but people seem to have an idea that training to failure is a purely physiological thing. They think that training to failure is nervous system, skeletal muscle, that is it. But there are other factors that go into training to failure that are outside of physiology. There's the psychological aspect of it, of who were you training with that day? Were you training alone or were you training with your buddies that you really enjoy training with? What was the environment that you were training in? Was it an environment like a gym where like everyone was going hard and you were very motivated to kind of go that same amount? How was your nutrition that day? How was, how are your stress levels for that day? And all of these factors go into auto regulations of what failure is for that day. Because when all the conditions line up perfectly, a failure set is 405 on squat for 15 blood curdling reps. When everything is going bad, stressful day at work, shit nutrition, psychologically in the dumps, got a bad night of sleep, failure is 405 for seven life-sucking, life soul-wrenching reps. It's like the failure point and the stimulus that was received by that muscle in those two conditions are probably close to the same. But the outcome of what you're measuring as, quote unquote, progress 
is very, very different. So from a logistical standpoint, using something like RIR, leaving something in the tank, leaving runway to keep going along that runway makes more sense from a planning standpoint. It may not be the best training to grow within that single moment, but growth occurs over months, years, and decades, not within a one, not within a single training session. I want to throw something out on what you just said, though. Potentially, they may not be the same because, like, part of the reason why maybe instead of getting, I think you said 15 reps and you just got, like, seven or let's just say it was 10, it was something closer, is that uh, nervous fatigue and not being able to activate those highest threshold or some of those those, uh, motor units. So, like, if you're not activating some of those motor units, they're not really getting the same tension stimulus that they would have if you got 15 reps, you know? So, you can go. And I think think the issue with that is, like, people will just say, oh, it was a bad training day. And then they – but then where – like, there's no measure of any progression there. Like, you logged a 405 for 15 on Monday, and then you logged a 405 for 6 on – Thursday or Friday, but you just and, claimed yeah, it as honestly, a bad training you day. Can even, you can even think of it as like your body's forcing you to have reps in reserve because your 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 body's like, hey, we, this muscle needs to recover. We're not using it to its full capacity. I won't let you. <laughs> so I did. I was part of a study at UCF. I was I was a subject in it where the protocol. It was a muscle damage study, so they were just trying to induce as much muscle damage as possible and then measure creatine kinase, all, all the markers of muscle damage. And I witnessed firsthand how my body can auto-regulate effort to protect me. So the protocol was five sets of 10 on squat, bench, deadlift, and split squat for the day at 75%. So do some math there, 10 reps, 75%. Oh, good. Every set is a 10RM. Perfect. By the time, and the rests were 60 seconds between sets, so no no complete recovery either. By the time I got to split squats, I would, and I'm not joking here, I would bend my knee and my entire leg would give out. So my body was RIRing hard at that point. It was like, please stop. You have just absolutely murdered yourself. You can, you simply cannot do anymore. Like that's just, it's not a it's not a productive way to to progress your training over time from a coaching standpoint it's like what the hell do i like dom said what the hell do i do with this i see my client log 405 for 15 on monday came back in on friday got 405 for 7 what do i do with this what is this data even what does this data even mean to me and then from an athletic standpoint you're like okay cool i was a badass on monday and now i'm a piece of shit on friday yeah I think, too, like, yeah, I mean, just to kind of put that into a theoretical perspective, you know, like, you know, RIR is just a way to manage fatigue over time, right? So that preferably after four, five, eight weeks of training, um, we were able to have uh, more productive sessions in over that time period. And then potentially, if we're recovering better or faster between sessions, potentially we can 
maybe even have more frequent sessions. And we know volume is an important aspect in that, that we do more volume over time, but also with like thinking about within the workout as well. Like we just talked about how that CNS fatigue, like some fatigue can linger from workout to workout and make, you know, you get less reps on your next workout potentially, but also within that session, if you, um, hit sets to failure early in your session and you have more sets for that muscle group, the following volume could be less effective and you could end up potentially accumulating less volume over the training session as well as between session or over sessions. And, um, I mean, we even know, like, for instance, and it's not even just for that muscle group. Like, we know if you do a really hard sets, set of squats to failure, right? And most people aren't doing biceps in their uh, leg workout. but And then you do, like, a set of biceps, you may have a reduced output because of that systemic fatigue. So, I mean, like, but it, it may be common to do bench and biceps, bench and arms together, or bench and, and delts or something, or chest and delts or whatever. So that's a consideration. And then, like, you know, people make a lot of assumptions on, on the amount of stimulus that you may or may not be missing out on from doing a... Uh, a set to failure. So, but like, think about it this way, like in terms of just practically, like in terms of a stimulus, what's the difference between having one rep left and zero? Like the stimulus is probably incredibly similar. The difference, I mean, this is hypothetical. I can't say this for sure, but like the difference between one IR and zero RIR or failure in terms of stimulus is probably like negligible almost identical like you're, you're working really hard on both of those reps and then with you know as you get further from failure like yeah maybe there is less stimulus but it's probably not as much as you would think like 2RIR to 1RIR like you're still working really hard at 2RIR but what is pretty like evident that we have all experienced like even just anecdotally the amount of fatigue you get between 2RIR 1RIR and 0RIR is huge yeah right <laughs> like and, and I think fatigue that, I and think that technique goes, degradation and I think that I think that goes into like the volume thing you said like you you can get more volume out of out of training like that so which in turn ends up you know it, like spreading out like extending your exposure to stimulus rather than training to failure all the time and I'll I'll throw out one more thing too, like, um, you know, we may come to find with more and more research because it is being explored more often that the hypertrophy outcome could be very similar. And uh, some of the research, like they, there's, there are limitations, you know, like some of the research is like failure versus non-failure and they literally one RIR versus zero RIR. And it's like, ah, eh, that's so close together. It's kind of, it's, it's the same stimulus. Of course they got very similar names. Um, but we may find that, uh, you know, even at three RIR, two RIR, you know, we, we may find RIR is not better for gains, but like if you make the same gains and you don't have to work as hard, like, isn't that better? <laughs> Like, if you don't have to risk injury more more frequently, like, isn't that better? If, like, you don't have to, like, take four scoops of pre-workout and, like, think about, like, somebody murdering your family before a set, like, isn't that better? <laughs> <laughs> 
I guess it's in the interpretation. And like you said, there's a lot of limitations in the research. One of the limitations is like us reading the study. We, we're not there watching the people train. So there's no there's no way for us to say, OK, that was failure. Like I watched, you know, subject number seven do that set of leg extensions. That was failure. Yeah, I think because, I mean, years back we were using RPE or like sort of an, an adapted form of RPE for bodybuilders. So basically we're, we, we already knew that it was, you know, it's your perceived exertion where RAR is still perceived. So I don't know if what you think is failure in your head is actually failure. I mean, I, I've never seen anyone squat to failure. That's just not something I've never, you know, maybe, maybe on a one rep max attempt, I've seen, seen someone fail, but I've never, I've never seen somebody do like a set of eight to 12 and then fail on 11. That's just not something I've ever seen. I mean, I've seen people get pinned maybe on a leg press or something, but nobody, I've never seen someone like really fail on bicep curls. It's just not. So we get a little bit tied up in the weeds here. I think, you know, when people make that argument of like, is it failure or RIR? Well, it's, it's definitely somewhere in the middle. It's real big in the natural community right now where people go against IRR, RIR almost like militantly. And it's real big sort of like with the Brits. I mean, granted they're Jack, but a lot of those guys are like, no, we go to failure every single time, no matter what. And then I look at some of their sets and I'm like, is that real? Was that really failure? Like, it looks like the speed of that. That's what we would consider to be like two reps left because the bar was still moving pretty fast. Just because you slam the barbell down after your last rep of deadlifts and then grunted does not mean that that's failure. So, I mean, I think we're, we get a little bit caught up in the weeds here because it, it, RAR is still relative and then failure is probably also somewhat relative. Yeah. The chart Paul has uh, for like bar speed or like movement speed, that, that really showed me a lot. Like what, speed your lift should actually look like at what RIR like you can really tell like like if a client sends me a video they're on like a two RIR week and I can just tell by the way they're moving I know they're like really undershooting or overshooting just from their video I mean I do it with myself I watch a video of me lifting and I'm like oh that was definitely like a four and I said in my in my head, it felt like a two. So I'm like, it's barely moving. I'm going to die. And I look at it. And I'm like, oh, no, because you're you're in that moment and you're moving yeah. weight. It things just feel differently. So I mean, it's, it's just it gets real tough. But at the end of the day, RIR is just a way to to gauge or a way for you to make sure that you're you're training hard every single time. So if you look at the logbook and you did 10 and that was a three, well, hopefully now maybe a little bit more weight. You can also get 10, and now that's a 2. You've, you've overloaded at the or end. Or you get lucky, and you didn't accumulate a ton of fatigue from that last workout. You added load, and it's still a 3. Yeah, exactly. You know? Where if you went to failure, potentially, I mean, it still could have been a good workout. You know? At some point, you probably would have broken down and had a bad workout. But, like, or, um, what's a Shit. What the fuck was I saying? <laughs> Wait. What did I say just before that? No one was listening, Paul. Damn it. I, I had a thought literally just... Here, Paul. Let, let me just fill in the gap here, and we'll give you a chance to think about it. I got two takeaways from what Jason said, and they're, they're, they're both very good takeaways. Uh, the first takeaway is that intensity, whether it be relative or absolute, is more about guttural noises and faces that you make in the mirror than it is about actual 
actual training intensity, the classical definition. So we can go ahead and rewrite the record books, the textbooks there. And the second thing I got away, because Jason was talking about, you know, a true set of failure to squat on squat. A true set of failure is I squatted down. I tried to stand up. My leg musculature did not have the gusto to get me back up, and the weight fell off of my back. What I can tell you is that the people who are saying they're doing four sets of squat to failure are liars because no one fails on a set of squat and then comes back for more. No one like outside of federal prison. Because if you come back after that set of failure and you do three more sets, we need to talk about hashtag mental health because you've got some some screws that are very loose sir or madam paul did you think of what you were gonna say i can't but i really do like jason's point and uh you, you phrase it a little differently but it's you know rir is actually like people look at it as a way to kind of people who view it negatively almost like uh an excuse to be lazy but it's actually more so a uh a way to ensure you're working hard enough, right? Like we're working there. There's some threshold. Like it, it's not just a, a an on or off switch. Like growing isn't an on or off switch where it's like okay, like uh, we hit failure, so we're definitely growing. We're two reps away shy away from failure. We we didn't do enough to get any sort of adaptation, you know. So like, but there is like some threshold where we're probably like optimizing are like getting that stimulative response. And so you're just ensuring that, hey, we're working hard enough to hit this. And at some point we probably will hit failure. And like whether it's planned or unplanned, like it's it's not a fear of failure. I think the evidence based community kind of kind of dumped on beating the logbook like beating the logbook was like this hardcore mentality of like what the hell are those guys doing like writing down in their logbook the reps that they're doing and just you know hashtag beating the logbook each week but like that's how stupid what that i feel like that's what you we circled like with rir we, like, we circled all the way back around and we're like hold on wait 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 <laughs> descending rirs is beating the logbook <laughs> we we are who we swore to defeat <laughs> Like, if you're good at this, anybody who I've, okay, they, like, I've met some weird genetic freaks that are at least claim, like, oh, I don't track anything, I just go in and train. But, like, the vast majority of the people I know that are good at this and that have made progress, like, that's what they do. You know, whether or I, like, yeah, I use RIR, and I if I happen to hit my RIR a little early, I cut the set for the day because it's a clear indicator that maybe I'm not recovered well and I need some recovery time or something. But, like, when I before I start a set, before I touch the weight, I'm like, okay, I got 12 reps last week at three RIR. I'm adding two and a half pounds to each side. I'm getting 13 this week, and I'm taking the at least 13, maybe more, and I'm taking the set to two RIR. You know what I mean? Oh. Like, <laughs> so I'm gonna close this out with a story of a genetic freak who ain't never heard of RIR and ain't never needed it. Jay, I think you know this guy. He's his name's like Lee. I think he used to work out at oh. the Oviedo LA Fitness. Yeah, he has I got a story about that guy. Big man tattooed on his forearms, and let me tell you, he was a big man. This guy used to come in the gym, jeans and a tank top. You know the fit. 
And he would go immediately to the dumbbell rack, grab the 125s for incline, no warm-up. This is off the streets. The man comes in warmed up and full of rage and just alternating press. I'm talking like sets of 20 with the 125s, no warm-up. Straight over to the bar to do some deadlifts. 135, nah. 225, not a fucking chance. 315, save that shit for the birds. We're going straight to 405 for first set. And you goddamn better believe that I'm screaming on every rep. Lee, if you're out there watching, I think your name was Lee. I fucking love you, man. When I was like 21, (laughs) you were legit my hero. I wanted to be you. That guy, when I, uh, so when I sort of made the transition from competing in the NPC and men's physique to natural bodybuilding, I remember it was my first show. Katie and I was our first show. So we show up and I walk in. I think I'm, you know, I'm hot shit because I've done well in an NPC men's physique show. You know, I'm going to fucking clean house here. So I show up and there's a fella sitting on the floor as we're checking in and he's hoodied up. He's got a hoodie on. He's got some beat up sneakers. And he looks up at me and he was like, uh, and the voice that came out sounded like, like what I imagine God, if God and James Earl Jones had a baby. This is what the voice would sound like. And he like lifts up his hoodie and he just asked me, he's like, oh, you competing today? And I was just like, what the? F-? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to compete. Yeah. Okay. So I don't really pay much attention to him because he stayed hoodied up the entire time. So we're all warming up. I'm getting warm. Still thinking I'm going to crush this whole thing. And then this guy disrobes and I look over and I'm just like immediately I'm like, oh, this is fucked. Like, you know, I'm like, Katie, let's pack all our shit. Like, let's go home. It's over. The most ridiculous human being I've ever seen. And then I start talking to him and he's like, I'm like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I, uh, I think he was doing like road construction. I'm like, yeah, of course. That's what you do. Like that. Yeah. (laughs) The most ridiculous human being I've ever seen in person. Before we close it out though, or move on or whatever, do you guys, you guys are familiar with, uh, the Doran Yates training, right? Like you guys watch blood and guts and all that. Like it's, it's been some years for me, but like every day, (laughs) um, it's been some years for me, but it wasn't just, he didn't just do one all out set to failure, right? Like he had a couple sets. First one was somewhat easier. The second one was challenging, but just not to failure. And then he would do one or two more that were. To yeah, it was, like so a, it was it, an easy one that looked probably close to like a four or a five RIR. And then he would have like a moderate set that was maybe like two or three RIR. And then he would take, I think it was just one final set. So that final set was just the one where he would go zero or one RIR to failure. So and, it, it was kind of like a, like a pyramiding RIR set, not a lot of volume at that super, super high intensity. Yeah, but ultimately, like, what people don't realize probably is, like, some of those earlier sets ramping up, like, those counted towards absolutely volume for adaptation and his his workouts were not as low volume as people like to probably make it sound like it probably was on the lower end of volume but it it wasn't like just like people make it sound like it it was just as low volume as you get like he only did for 
challenging sets when like the other sets were hard enough to count towards like probably some stimulus for adaptation and like you know all around like isn't all that unintelligent of, a, of an approach like if somebody who did tell me they wanted to go to failure every single workout i would say well like let's at least be strategic about it and just take your last set to failure or just take your last set of that muscle group to failure maybe so that you you can still uh you know maybe not limit your volume a little bit and get a little more um effective volume in there but uh even we know him though i mean he he suffered his fair share amount of injuries and not only that like you know you would be silly to think he wasn't using large amounts of drugs that sort of change um you know uh, not not change what what's effective, but I mean, you know, when, when you have one, two, three plus grams of gear in your body, like and like, yeah, training maybe once a week is cool because you have that that elevated muscle protein synthesis response all the time for covering those long durations of time, you know. So, yeah, he was doing, you know, what, four to five exercises per muscle group doing those once a week with one relatively easy set, one moderate set, and one failure set. So he had five sets to failure per week. That was it. Yeah. Which if you look at like what we consider to be the most amount of, you know, that range of uh, effective volume for the population, it's an average. So he's probably just on the outside of the average. So it's not really like he's doing anything that's crazy. It's just that is what worked for him. And a boatload of drugs. So those yeah, <laughs> and when you really fuck yourself up is when you combine the high volume approaches of other bodybuilders in that era or the era before the Arnolds of the world that were doing you know three four hours of training a day. You combine that high volume with the high intensity when you really start uh, running into some issues. I think there was a lot of stuff about Dorian taking like illegal prescription level painkillers before each workout as well because he was a lot of those days uh, uh, back Dude, there was uh, there was an injectable pain reliever that yeah. all those guys used so like Nubane was one uh, Nubane. that was addictive yeah. I believe and then even what was it Toradol Toradol yep Toradol is a common one that's the one he talks about I think he talked he got, about he that on the kidneys maybe I don't know on the episode with uh Mr. Yo Rogaine, Mr. Joe Rogan. I think he talked about that a bit. Yeah, he talked about his gear use, too. It wasn't too high, apparently. Nah. And, and re- <laughs> yeah, right. And, like, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> um, you know, like, people think that that's just the cost of the the sport. But really, in bodybuilding, like minor stuff, like tendonitis, sure, you know, little overuse injuries. You know, I got like a little bullshit going on with my shoulder that I should probably figure out within a week or two. But like serious injuries, you know, like that that should not happen in bodybuilding. We we have <laughs> like so many options for movement selection. Like there's it just like everything when it comes to everything recovery wise, like it. You shouldn't be like – you should not finish a career bodybuilding and be like, yeah, I tore my lat once and my bicep once and my chest once. Like I need hip and knee fucking surgery. Like 
those are injuries you should get from playing like high level professional sports. Yes. The performance component. Yeah. Where Don't. like <laughs> you, you have to perform and you have to perform under injury because you make money or like a college scholarship is on the line or some bullshit. <laughs> So don't tear my lat to impress someone at the local LA Fitness. <laughs> no, don't not. do it. Highly unrecommended. <laughs> <laughs> not worth it. All right, guys, that is going to wrap us up today. I know we spent a good amount of time on those first couple questions. So if you did ask a question, it is on the list. It will get answered in an episode to follow. Um, as always, do the like, comment, subscribe, that kind of stuff. Blah, 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 blah. If you made it this far, we love you. Paul loves you. He's going to come to your house late at night and tuck you in, give you a little smoochie on your forehead. We'll see you on the next one. As always, stay gifted, guys. See ya. Bye. Peace up, A-Town Down.